0: was the scourge of the early church. Matter of fact, I think that the very name Saul of Tarshish probably put a chill down the spine of every early believer. He was a killer of Christians. And as Acts chapter 9 opens, Saul is headed down the road to Damascus where he is going to hunt down and find and kill some more Christians but you know if you know your Bible you know he's not going to get to Damascus is he he gets struck down on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 he hears a voice only he can hear he is blinded by light he is sent down a street called straight to the house of a man by the name of Ananias where he is going to receive his sight and be gloriously saved. And as the old bluegrass song imagines him saying, what was that you said, Lord? Are you talking to me? Seems the blinder I get, the better I see. And now Saul is a Christian. Notice, he who was the hunter, He who was hunting Christians now has become a Christian himself. And he begins to go in the temple, in the synagogue on a daily basis, beginning to share his testimony of what God has done for him. And the same Jewish religious leaders back in Jerusalem that used to send him out to kill Christians get this report back that he is now public enemy number one to their religious system. And now the Jewish leaders have sent a hit squad to Damascus to kill Saul. Notice how the tables have turned. Notice how the hunter has now become the hunted. As we come to Acts chapter 9... That hit squad is on the outside of the city walls. They know that Saul is somewhere on the inside of Damascus. They have got a 24-7, 365 stakeout going. They are just biding their time till he shows himself. They are going to nab him, grab him, and stab him. Saul is nothing more at this point than a walking dead man. Can we take a time out right here before we read the Scripture? Can you imagine with me how much different our lives as Christians would be today had they been successful right here at killing him? Imagine how much lighter, how much shorter that book you hold in your hands would be had they killed him right here. But they're going to kill him. There's no way out. As we come to Acts chapter 9 and verse 23. Acts chapter 9 and verse 23 says, And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying away was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. There it is. He's on the inside, they're on the outside, they're just biding their time. He's a walking dead man. What makes the difference? Verse 25. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. Shazam! Under cover of darkness, while others lay sleeping, somewhere up on the top of that wall, Some unnamed disciples who we will never know their identity until we get to glory. Saved the life of he who was to become the greatest theological mind since Jesus Christ, writer of half the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. And they saved him with a basket. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, for just a few minutes this morning... I want to leave you with this simple thought, the power of a basket. And this is a very exciting morning in Cookville, Tennessee. You just thought you were coming to church. You're going to hear some preaching, hear some good singing, and uh, that, that, that you'd go home and beat the Methodists down to the steakhouse or whatever. You just thought it was a regular day. Uh-uh. This is a day like no other. This is audience participation Sunday. You all are going to help me preach this message. I can feel the excitement coming from the cheap seats back here. All right. All right. This is practice. All right. All right. Everybody's going to repeat after me. I'm taking notes. If you don't do it, I'm going to call you up here. All right. So we've already done this once, but we'll practice again. Look to your neighbor right now. This is practice. Say, hey, neighbor. I don't care what they say. Your hair looks good like that. Okay. That was practice. This is the real deal. All right. Here we go. Point number one you're going to give it. Everybody say, I've got a basket. I want you to think first of all this morning about the presence of your basket. What are you talking about, preacher? Here's what I'm saying. Every person under the sound of my voice this morning, you have a realm of influence in your life. You have people that love you, that respect you, that will listen to what you have to say. They may not ever listen to a preacher. They may not like preachers. They may have had a bad experience with a preacher. They may think all preachers are Fruit Loops and morons. But they know you. They'll love you. They'll listen to you. That means you have a realm of influence. Listen, I'm not just talking to preachers or deacons or Sunday school teachers. I'm just not talking just to Christians, you might be lost as a ball in tall weeds this morning, but you have influence, and that means you have a basket. That's right. No man is an island, we do not live and die unto ourselves. We all influence somebody else, and we know this, right? You know the power when somebody gives you a compliment, says something nice to you, how good it makes you feel, builds you up, makes your day. And you also know the feeling of somebody, some negative knothead that comes along and says something bad and puts you in a bad mood. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I I pastored there in Wayne County, Ohio, 21 years. I had a lady in our church. She thought she had a unique spiritual gift. She thought it was her duty and responsibility just about every week. Right before I'd go preach, she'd uh, come around the corner, she'd look me up and down check me out real good, and then give commentary to me on whether she thought I had gained or lost weight. Can I tell you, usually, the report was not good. Isn't that a blessing right before you preach? Somebody tell me you're getting fat, like I need your help, like I don't have a mirror and a scale at my house. I need you to tell me that. But, There was another lady in our church, dear, saintly, elderly lady, Sister Jenny Crow. Not too long before we moved down to Nashville, in between Sunday school and church, Sister Jenny Crow out in the the lobby, she motioned me over like she's getting ready to tell me a big secret. I went over, I said, yes, ma'am. She said, pastor, have you been dieting again? Because it sure looks like it. Whoa, I mean I was coming up. Matter of fact, I tell you how good that made me feel. I tell you what I did for Sister Jenny Crow after church that day. I walked her and her CNI dog all the way to her car. But the reality is, you know, on a daily basis, in our lives, by our actions, by our words, we know the power of influence. We know that we have influence over somebody we have. And why is it in church that it seems like we're so eager? It's so easy for us to use that negatively. But it's so hard for us to use it. I mean, we're quick if something's not in the bulletin it's supposed to be. It's too soft. It's too loud. He didn't preach what I wanted to preach. They didn't sing my favorite song. Brother uh, well, Seth, I, I, I can't prove this. You all know that. You remember that old Western song? Oh, give me a home where the buffalo road. Remember that song? Remember what that guy was looking for in that song? He was looking for a place where seldom was heard. I'm working on proving this. I think the guy who wrote that was Free Will Baptist. Some of you are looking over and saying, where in the world did the preacher get this guy? You've got a basket. You have a realm of influence. Somebody's looking to you. They're not looking to him. They're looking to you. I'm placing this responsibility squarely in your lap today. Somebody's counting on you. You've got a basket, but I'm not going to leave it there. Oh no! You ought to think when you come to church. I said this is audience participation. I want you to look back at your neighbor and say, "Hey, neighbor, there's somebody in my basket." I want you to think, first of all, not only about the presence of your basket, but I want you to think right now, number two, about the specific people in your basket. I'm going to give you permission to do something right now. You've probably done a time or two in church. I'm going to give you permission to daydream a little bit. While I'm preaching right now, I want you to see names. I want you to think of faces right now that are in your basket. If you need help with this, let me help you. Is there anybody here that's married? Two people in Cookville are married. We better have a revival here, brother. I mean, how many are married? Let me see. Okay, much better. How many know that our spouse influences our actions and our attitudes? Oh, fellas, you really ought to be amen. Because we all know the old ad, you know the old saying. If daddy ain't happy, ain't nobody cares. But if mama ain't happy. Okay, moving right along. Is there anybody here? Is there anybody here that have children? It, is there anybody here has grandchildren? Is there anybody here that thinks the grandchildren are way more awesome than the kids ever hoped to be? Anybody here have grandchildren by your daughter and your son-in-law? How many have grandchildren by your daughter and son can you explain this? I see this phenomenon all over this country. How is it that the prettiest, smartest girl can marry the ugliest, dumbest man and give you the greatest grandchildren that ever walked the face of the earth? How's that work? Your neighbors? Kids in your Sunday school class? Your coworkers? Your basket's filling up, isn't it? But if you don't hear anything else I say today, if you never remember my name or anything else about me, you hear me? You hear this point right here. There are some people that God is fixing to bloop, drop in your basket that you may never know about until you get to glory. And that is why it is important for us to always be at our best for the master because you never know when God's fixing to Drop somebody in your And I've got a true story that goes with this. And I know it's true because I was there when it happened. It happened in Creston, Ohio. I was, I was teaching Sunday school. I had the pastor's adult Sunday school class. We had a fan-shaped auditorium. I had about six different uh, sets of pews. And I taught through the Bible in, the, in, the, in Sunday school in there. There were two couples back here that I did not recognize. After Sunday school, before church, I went over and introduced myself and the fellow said, Pastor, if you have a few minutes after church, can, we, can I talk to you? I said, well, i got a few minutes now. He said, Pastor, I want to introduce myself. My name is Murray Gibbons. This is my wife, Emily. He said, we are from Ontario, Canada. And he said, Pastor, you don't know this, but this is not the first time we have been at this church. And then he told me this story. About a year before... We were standing there talking that day. He said, we were vacationing through the United States. We'd come down and vacation. He said, it was early on a Sunday morning. We were driving up through Ohio back to the Canadian border at Detroit, Michigan. He said, and my mind, got to thinking about a farmer that I used to trade cattle with from Ohio named Ken Brown. If you ever wondered if Farmer Brown was real... He is. He lives next door to our church in Creston, Ohio. His wife, Carol, is a real estate agent. He said, I looked at my GPS where Ken Brown's farm was. We were less than an hour away. We had some time to kill. I told my wife, I'd like to go look up Ken Brown, visit with my old friend. So they headed to Creston, Ohio. The Ken Brown's farm is within sight of our church. He said, we got out, went up on the porch, knocked on the door, no answer. He said, I looked out from the porch and saw your parking lot. Cars were beginning to come in for church. I said to my wife, Emily, I bet that's where the Browns go to church because it's so close to their house. Church had not started yet over there. Let's go over in the parking lot and see if we can find Ken Brown. Now look, we got up that morning. This is Creston, Ohio. Small town USA. I mean, not like the big city of Cookville. You got to understand I'm talking about small village of Creston. I'm talking about our zip code was E-I-E-I-O, okay? Are you getting the picture? We don't hear the, the Friday Night Opry on the radio till Sunday. I mean, it is, it's way back here. And so, had no idea. We left home, that little little village of Creston had no idea. God was fixing to, ploop drop a couple from Ontario, Canada. I didn't know it for a year. If he hadn't come back, I'd never known it. He said, We got in the parking lot, got out, lots of people getting out of cars, couldn't find Ken Brown. He said, Church hasn't started yet, let's go in the foyer and see if we can find him. He said, We got in the foyer. And here's what he said I've got an email from Murray me this is what he said. He said, We didn't find the Browns that day, but we found such a friendly welcome. Are you, are you listening to me? Are you listening? I'm talking about our responsibility. I'm talking about your basket. I'm talking about before the service ever started, these people weren't coming to church. Oh, by the way, Murray Gibbs was about 60 years old at that time. Oh, by the way, has never been in a church in his life. And he's not going to church this morning. He's just looking for Farmer Brown, and he's going to get out of there. He said, we didn't find the Browns, but we found such a friendly welcome. There was somebody at the door, shook our hand, gave us a bulletin. He said, by the time we got through that four-year, there must have been 20, 25, 30 people shook our hand and welcomed us until I looked at my wife and said, well, it's obvious the Browns aren't here. If he would have asked me, I'd have told him that Browns are Presbyterian. They go down the street. He said, it's obvious the Browns aren't here. He said, but we are. And these folks have been so nice to us, it wouldn't hurt us. Let's go on into service. He said, oh, pastor, we're from Canada. Oh, pastor, we're not church people. We had a Southern Gospel Quartet that I sang in for 25 years there in the church. We apparently sang that morning. He said, we'd never heard singing like that. He said, and then you got up to preach. He said, you went this way and that way and jumped off the platform and turned red in the face and spit back about 10 rows and acted like you really believed what you were saying. He said, I still remember exactly what you preached that day. He said, we got in the car headed to Canada. He said, it's all we could talk about, the friendliness of your people singing, the fellowship, the preaching. He said, I couldn't get away from it. He said, I couldn't sleep at night. He said, it's all I could talk about for the next two weeks was your church. Until my wife got so tired of hearing me talking about this church. She said, honey, there's got to be a church around here we can find. And on a Sunday morning, we walked two blocks from our house to a Bible church. The gospel was presented. We walked the aisle We have given our lives to Christ. We are getting baptized next Sunday, but we have told our pastor so much about this church that we have come back from Canada this morning. This is our pastor and his wife, and we want your congregation to know you don't even know who we are, but we are on our way to heaven primarily through the ministry of this church. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, can you think of anything that ought to drive us to our knees any more than the fact that somebody's eternal destiny is counting on you? It's counting on me. They don't know the pastor. They know you. Somebody's counting on you. It's your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, your coworkers. Somebody's in my basket. kind of influence are you? See, here's, a, here's the devil's biggest lie. Well, I can do what I want to with my life, and it doesn't affect anybody else. That is a lie from the pits of hell. What you do always affects somebody else. Stories told of that man up north. He was, a, he was just an old drunk. And on Christmas Day, with what little money his family had, he left out in a snowstorm, headed to the bar to spend what little money his family had. He's walking through the snowdrift to the bar on Christmas, and all of a sudden, in the snowstorm, they said he heard a little voice saying, "Walk a little slower, Daddy. I'm coming in your shoes." And he looked back and he saw his little boy, and his little boy was trying to put his. He was trying to keep up with his dad, putting his feet. In the tracks in the snow of his dad and conviction fell on that man. He said, Dear Lord, my steps should be taking my son to the house of God and they're taking him to an old bar. Hey, this is serious business. It's not just about you. Somebody is following your leadership. Somebody's in your basket. I wish I could close out the point number four, but i got to stop by point number three. I know you can do it. Look to your neighbor. Give him a real serious look. Say, there's a problem in the basket. Y'all are dying out on me. We're almost done. Houston, we have a problem. Put yourself in this. You got to think when you come to church. Put yourself. You're one of the disciples been called over to the basket on that wall that night. Reckon what they saw when they looked in that basket. You do realize a few weeks before this he, had been a, he was killing Christians. You do realize the early church was very small. Do you realize that some of the men that are being called upon to save this guy's life, that guy in that basket might have been responsible for killing some of their friends or family members. Could we have blamed them if they dropped the ropes and said, I don't think I want to get involved in this deal. This guy might be a double agent trying to get inside and kill more of us. Can I ask you a personal question? What do you see in your basket? You got a problem in your basket? Oh, I reckon you probably do. Because you know what? Let me give you Jim McComas Church Principle number one. Are you ready for it? If if you're taking notes, get ready. This is good. People are annoying. You don't have to say amen. I mean, you know it's true. You've got somebody in your life right now that's annoying. Oh, yeah. That person in your life that's always creating drama, always running their mouth on Facebook, always at the family reunion, they're always, I mean, they're just you hate to see them coming because they're going to give you a full organ recital of everything that's wrong. You better be thinking of somebody right now because if you can't think of somebody, you might be it. I'm just saying. I taught religious, weekday religious education in our local public school in Ohio there. For 12 years, the last 12 years of my pastorate, I taught 250 middle school kids. It's a constitutionally protected program in our public school with parental permission. We walk the kids off school property during school hours, not an after school Bible club. This is in school to a building that the local churches had built for this purpose. There's over a thousand programs. like. Listen, 250 kids a year. Some of them good ones, I didn't know their name by the end of the year, but I knew all the bad ones on a first name basis. Matter of fact, I had a full head of hair before I started that deal. There was one year as a boy, he was particularly annoying. His name was Kyle. He was an eighth grader. I mean, I almost kicked him out of class a couple times because he was just a distraction. I couldn't get anything done, couldn't teach. And one day, my life changed when I came to the school to pick our kids up and there was an ambulance in front of the school. I said to the school secretary, what's the ambulance? She said, it's Kyle. Been having seizures. Seizures. Two teachers are down here at the end of the counter. I overhear them talking. Oh, they said, I think it's his home life. I think it's nothing but stress. Oh, the things that that boy has to endure in his home. See, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. All I saw was a problem in my basket. Oh, listen, I've come to know that in the last two years in my job now. Our kids, we, we, we work with the roughest and toughest and gangbangers and, 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 and broken and abused kids and they've got issues. And sometimes the school doesn't want our kids and the community sometimes scared of our kids. And sometimes even some of our employees, you know, they get scared. But listen, all, everybody has the same, all, every annoying person in your life right now, you know what they need? They just need the love of God in their life. They just need Jesus. They need to, to feel the lo- love of Jesus from somebody. And from that moment on, that day, with that ambulance out in front of the school, I made a conscious effort to be nicer to Kyle, pay more attention to him. One day he sent me an email. He said, Preacher, I need to see you. I said, I'll be in school tomorrow. Principal let me take him out of class because they were concerned about him. He began to pour out his heart in the principal's conference room to me, some of his family problems. And finally he just broke down and said, Preacher, I just need God in my life. Please don't tell the ACLU this next part. But in a public school, in the principal's conference room, I led Kyle to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I brought him a Bible the next day. Hey, listen. Are there problems? Yes. Is this easy? Is it easy to love people where they're at? Is it easy to build a church in the day and age in which we live in? No, it's not. Because you know what? You invite people to church, they're going to bring their problems with them. And can I tell you, in the day and age in which we live in, people get themselves into some big problems. I'm talking about Jerry Springer show problems. I'm talking about messes. I'm talking about, listen. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 14.4 says, no, where, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. You get that, right? If you don't have any animals on the farm, you don't have any mess to clean up. But Proverbs 14.4 goes on to say, but much increase is through the strength of the ox." you're not going to have any animals on the farm, you're not going to get any work done. So this is messy business. Yes, there are problems. Just that night, can you imagine what they're looking and they're seeing a problem in the basket. But oh, I'm glad I can close this sermon with point number four and say there is something good in your basket. Oh, my friend, if we could go back that night and we could see these guys holding the ropes and they're maybe having second thoughts about saving this guy's life, what would we tell them? Good night, boys. You have no idea who that is. That's the Apostle Paul. That hand that's going down in that basket is going to pick up a quill, and he's going to write half the New Testament. He's going to write the Romans' road to salvation. He's going to be the first missionary. He's going to Thessalonica and Colossae and Galatia. He's the greatest theological mind since Jesus Christ. Oh, boys, hold the rope strong. You've got potential, potential in that basket. Can I ask you a personal question? Reckon what you've got in your basket. These young people all around this building, the next great preacher, the next great missionary. You say, preacher, you're saying that God could call a great preacher missionary from Cookville, Tennessee. I'm saying he's still in the calling business, amen? They got to come from somewhere, amen? So might as well be Cookville as anywhere else. Somebody better hold the ropes of their testimony strong. Somebody better stay on the job because you've got something good in your basket. Sunday school teacher, don't you quit. I'm talking, I know we've got public school teachers, maybe Christians. Listen, stay on the job. Be faithful. Shine your light as a Christian because somebody is counting on you. That neighbor that you think just makes fun of you. That person at work that tells dirty jokes just because they know in your presence that they have no respect for you as a Christian, I guarantee you when the problem comes, when the cancer diagnosis comes, you're going to be the first one they're going to call. Somebody better stay on the job because there's potential in your basket. If I could close this sermon, what I'd like to do I'd like to take us all and put us all in a big old time machine. If I could take you in your mind's eye, I'd like to take you back to 1975. Yes, young people, life did exist in 1975. I was there. I'd like to take you to a place called Apple Creek, Ohio, home of the Johnny Appleseed Festival. Old Johnny went through there planting apples years ago. They're still having a parade for him. There's a cream-colored house on Millbourne Drive. There is a man and woman. It's Monday night, summer of 1975. There's a man and woman coming out. They're going in their their, uh, station wagon. Their names are Gary and Carol Oswald. They drive that station wagon down about a quarter of a mile to the Millbourne Manor trailer park, and kids are coming out of their trailers, and they're getting in the station wagon. If you were to interview the Oswalds that night, Monday night, summer 1975. What are you doing? Here's what they'd say. It's Vacation Bible School down at the church. And we're just picking up neighborhood kids taking them. And right now you're saying, Preacher, why are you wasting our time? We're all hungry. We're tired. We're worn out. It's daylight. We've lost an hour of sleep. Let us go. Why are you talking about somebody picking up kids to go to Bible school in 1975, somewhere in a place called Apple Creek? We've all worked Bible school. We've all brought somebody to Bible school. We've all given to Bible school. Not a big deal. I am telling you because it was a big deal to me. Because the last stop that station wagon made every night that week. The last trailer on Holly Drive in the Millborn Trailer Park. Gary and Carol Oswald picked up my sister and I. I was six years old. I had just finished kindergarten, I was best friends with their son Randy, and on Friday night a vacation Bible school at the Grace Brethren Church in Worcester, Ohio, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have not been everything I should have been, but He has been everything He promised and so much more. And I don't know how many times in my life have I thought about the people who taught the classes and did the snacks and did the crafts. I wonder if they had a bad week at work. I wonder if they thought this is a waste of time, we haven't accomplished anything. And please don't get me wrong, I am no big deal. But I believe with all of my heart on the day of judgment that every people who invested in that week of Bible school will have part in every soul I will ever win in my ministry because they put me for one week at a time in their basket. If I could move that time machine, I'd move it up three years to 1978. Now, some of you are not going to like this part. If you've got heart medicine, it might be a good time to get it out. All right, hold on. 1978. When in 1978, as a nine-year-old boy in the third grade, I announced my call to preach. I've had people come up to me and say, "I don't know if I believe that." All due respect, I was there when it happened. <laughs> but you know, not a lot of people take you seriously when you're in third grade and you say you're going to be God's called you to be a preacher. You know, I had two uncles that were very prominent preachers in our area. My great-grandfather was a circuit-riding preacher in the hills of West Virginia and Kentucky. It's sort of like the family business. So it's like Johnny wants to be a fireman, Susie wants to be a nurse, Jimmy wants to be a preacher. Okay, go play. But there were a few people in my life that took me very seriously. I will never forget, in third grade, I just started attending a very small Christian school in our area. Probably 100 kids, K through 12. Very small. But every Monday we would come out, we'd have a convocation. Everybody would come out and have a devotion to start the week. I'll never forget our principal. Monday morning, Don Ballard. He walks out in front of the whole school and here's how he starts. Where's Jimmy McComas? How many know when the principal calls you out by name, usually it's not good. Everybody got quiet. I raised my hand. They just knew I was going to get it for something. You could have heard a pin drop. He walks over to me. Everybody's watching. He's got something in his hand. He says, Jimmy, I heard some news about you. I heard that God called you to preach. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I want you to know I'm proud of you. And I'm going to be praying for you. And then he handed me a gift from his personal library. It was a Ryrie adult study commentary on the book of John. Now, look, people, third grade. I mean, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer in third grade. I didn't, know, I didn't know how to write cursive. I didn't know, I, 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 didn't, I was the last one in fifth grade to learn my multiplication table. Matter of fact, if you asked me, I had to sing my multiplication tables to learn them. In fact, if you asked me today what eight times eight, well, I'd have to go eight times eight is 64. Is that right? 48, 56. Eight times eight is 64. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I wish I, could, I, I wish I could tell you I got something real deep in my devotions as a nine-year-old boy from a wry adult study commentary. But I tell you what I did get. Somebody who I looked up to and respected had just validated a decision I had made for Christ. And I have never forgotten it 40-plus years later like it was yesterday. Do you know what Don Ballard did when he handed me that book? Get in the basket, son. I'm for you. Priceless invaluable in my life. My third grade school teacher, Christian school teacher, Sue Thomas, she put me in her basket. She came to my desk that day. She said, God called you to preach. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, good, you're you're preaching chapel on Friday. Third grade. Preached on Noah and the Ark. Wrote it out in red pencil. Lasted five minutes. I know right now you're thinking, there ain't no way he preached five minutes, but I did. I wish I could tell you 15 people got saved. I wish I could tell you some good story about that. I'm sure it was unremarkable because I can't remember a thing I preached myself. But I tell you what I do remember. I do remember the feeling I had when I closed my Bible and walked off that stage. The feeling I had just done what God had called me to do. And can I tell you all these years later, there is no greater feeling like that in the world. See, I haven't told you the rest of the story. If you'd have lined up 100 third graders, I'd have been the last one you would have picked to be. Preacher. I had had speech therapy all the way through second grade. I had had several procedures on my ears for my hearing. I was so shy that I would not order for myself in a restaurant. But the will of God will never send you where the grace of God will not sustain you and give you what you need to do the job. I'm sure glad she put me in her basket. And then my, my pastor growing up, Carlos Browning, Truth Baptist Church, West Salem, Ohio, just a little country church. Some missionaries to Paris, France had come to our school, and I felt that I wanted to go work. The summer before my senior year of high school, I wanted to go work with these missionaries. And they said, we have a program with airfare and all the expenses. It costs you about $1,500 to come work for the summer. I mean, it might as well have been $15 million. We didn't have any money. My pastor, Pastor Browning, he said, put a sermon together. You're going to preach next Sunday night. I said, okay. Got up and preached that Sunday night Our little country church. Before I could give an invitation, before I could pray, Pastor Browning is there. He's got his arm around me in the pulpit. I'm thinking, what is going on here? He looks out at the congregation. He says, that was a good sermon. He said, that was a good sermon Jimmy just preached, wasn't it? Yeah. Amen good as a 16-year-old preacher just learning how to preach. He said, and you want a copy of that sermon, don't you? I'm thinking, what is going on? I mean, we gave away all of our sermons to anybody that wanted them on cassette tape. Young people, cassette tape, it was right after 8-track tapes, it was before just ask an older person, they'll tell you what it was. I mean, we gave them away for free on cassette. He said, you want a copy of that sermon so bad, he said, we've got a Legal pad down here on the communion table, and it's a sign up sheet. And y'all are going to sign up, and y'all are going to pay $5 a piece to buy that sermon he just preached on cassette tape. And we're going to send this boy to France. And he's praying, he's closing prayer, and I am walking off the stage. I am absolutely in tears, I'm thinking, Pastor, you have lost your mind, all due respect. I mean, isn't that what everybody wants to do to pay $5 for a kid preacher sermon that's usually free? I'm thinking, there ain't nobody. There ain't nobody gonna go for that. You know, you have snapshots in your life. I will never forget when I opened my eyes Our little country church, we didn't have any rich people. They were lined down the middle aisle. And they didn't give just $5. I've got the sheet somewhere in in a box somewhere at home. Some of them gave $25. Some of them gave $50. Some of them gave $100. Ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you. The CEO of Free Will Baptist Family Ministries, over a $17 million budget. Before that, I worked five years in the Home Missions Department as Director of Church Revitalization for the denomination. I worked with two doctors. Dr. David Crow. I had to look at that sign every time I went into work, and Dr. Brad Ransom. And every time i look at them signs, I thought, good grief, I work with two doctors, and I'm not even a nurse's aide. True story. I'm not the product of an ed- institution. I am the product of ordinary Christians just like you who for a moment in time invested themselves in my life. He was the scourge of the church. They'd have had every right. We couldn't blame them, could we, if they'd have dropped the ropes and walked away. But they saw something in that basket worth fighting for. And with strong arms and willing hearts, they picked up the ropes and they lowered the greatest preacher since John the Baptist and Jesus Christ Writer of half the New Testament. Over the wall. In a basket. Who's in your basket? What are you doing with them? Are you saved? Are you right with God? It's not just about you. Well, I can do anything I want to. If I go to hell, it'll be my best. No, somebody's following you. It's not just about you. You need to get saved. You need to get it right. Christian. How are you, how you doing on your influence? Somebody's watching you. Somebody's following you. And then what about those people in your past? Well, I've been given names like Don Ballard and Sue Thomas and Carlos Browning. You'd think of some names of people. Saintly, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, Sunday school teacher. If those people are still alive that influenced you, here's some homework. I think you ought to, maybe somebody needs a, make a call, send a text message, send a card. If they're here in the building, I don't think it'd be inappropriate to go to them and say, thank you for, I say, give me the roses while I'm living. Thank you for giving to the Lord. Thank you for putting me in your basket. Somebody's counting on you. I can't think of anything that ought to drive us to our knees any more than the reality that somebody is in our realm of influence. What will we do with Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience. These folks have been so kind. They've been so attentive. God, now we come to the time of service, a time of invitation, a time where we ask folks to act on what they have heard. And God, I pray that you would, would be with us now. God, across this room, I pray that we'd be challenged. Lord, I pray that for, for, for believers would be challenged to be, they've been confronted right in their face, with the reality that there's some people in their realm of influence, they don't know this pastor, they're not counting on us, they're a deacon, they're counting on them. It's personal. God, may we say, Lord, help me hold the rope strong of my testimony. Help me stay faithful. Maybe there's one that doesn't know you're in a full pardon of sin. They need to get their life right, and they know it. God, I pray you'd bless them. But whatever the need is, whatever the challenge Maybe it would be to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord, I don't need anything, but God, there's people you put in my life. I look back on my life and I see I'm not a self-made person. There's no such thing. I am the product of the people you blessed me with in my life. Thank you, Lord. Whatever the need is, I pray you'd meet it in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand all over the building.